Jesus' name. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 and verse 1. We're going to be focusing on verse 7 primarily. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. That's the name of this message. Grace to you. What does this mean? What is it that Paul is saying? Grace to you. The first thing we need to understand is what Paul is doing before we dive into what he is saying. What is he doing? Let's think of it this way. Grace is not Paul's to give to anyone, is it? Grace is not the possession or the property of any of the saints in Rome. Who does grace belong to? Is grace yours and mine to give, or is it God's? Grace is God's alone. So what is Paul doing? Well, in our culture, if someone sneezes, what tends to happen? People say, bless you. God bless you. Bless you is short for that. Now, you think of when you say, you know, I'm going to bless someone, is it that you're, if someone sneezes, do you ever actually give something to that sneezer? Do you ever reach in your pocket and give them a gift? Or, I mean, that never happens, right? So what, what is actually taking place when you say, God bless you or bless you? I mean, it's a prayer. It's a prayer request. It, you know, historically, people thought that if you sneezed, your heart was stopping or um, maybe... <clears throat> some sickness was upon you, maybe your soul was leaving your body, but that's what they were doing. They were making a prayer request that God would bless this person. That is what Paul is doing. He is praying. Grace to you, first, before we look at what it means, need to understand that it is a prayer request. Paul is crying out to God on behalf of these people that God would give them Grace. He didn't wish for grace. 
He prayed for it. He didn't say, well, the Lord is sovereign and whatever grace is needed, he's going to make sure it's supplied. No, he saw it as an urgent need to pray that grace would be given to these Christians. Which makes us think about ourselves, right? How often are you praying for others? How often is uh, the grace of God your prayer request for others? Any hyper-Calvinistic thinking in your mind? He prayed for them. Now, okay, that's what he was doing. But what was it that he was actually saying? What is this grace? Now, someone might be thinking, like, okay, we're still in the intro. I mean, this is the greeting. I mean, shouldn't we be moving past this already? Uh, is this section really that important? Um, Do you know why we think this way? Because we don't really mean what we say when we greet one another. I'll give you an example. At work, I'm rushing from one class to another, and I may be passing a fellow teacher. And that teacher may say to me, hey, Mr. C, how are you doing? And as I'm rushing to my class, I say, fine, how are you doing? And we walk past each other. Now, what would happen if I actually stopped and said, you know what? Let me tell you how I'm doing. I mean, what would that person think? I mean, it would be laughable, right? Because they're like, well, I didn't actually want to know. It's just a greeting. That's how we are. Uh, We say things that we don't really mean. Greetings don't necessarily have importance. But this is the Holy Scripture. This is the Word of God. This is God-breathed. This is the divine truth, the eternal word of the king of all kings. And while we may throw around words like paper airplanes, there are no throwaway words, verses, sentences in our Bible. It's all important. It's all intentional. There are no unimportant details. In fact, what does the Bible say about itself in both the Old and New Testament? Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. It's lacking nothing. It has everything needed. There's not an issue in this life that you can't go to Scripture and find the answer to. It's all addressed. It's totally sufficient. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's solid. It's not shaky. It's not wobbly. It's not sometimes up and sometimes down. It's always 100%, nine times out of nine, it is true making wise the simple. And in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is the point? All of scripture, all of the law of the Lord is perfect. Beware of reading too fast over these words because they look common. They look regular. They look just like a meaningless greeting. We may think, oh, we got to get past this to get to the weightier, the deeper, the more meaningful stuff and rush right past this greeting. This week in the news, I read a story that made me think about these three words. A California woman found a 4.38 carat yellow diamond 
sitting on top of the ground within an hour of searching at a crater of diamond state park last Thursday. It's the largest diamond found at the park in 2021. She spotted a sparkling gem on top of the ground. She said, I didn't know it was a diamond then, but it was clean and shiny, so I picked it up. Like, how many people walked past it? I mean, would you have noticed it? It's on the ground. It's on the surface. And people are probably thinking, no, if you want to find diamonds, you've got to go deep. You've got to rich and, and dig and all that. And here is this $15,000 jewel just sitting right on top of the surface. But brothers and sisters, in the same way, things like a greeting is a precious gem, an eternal jewel from the Lord, and there is much to be gained here. There is something meaningful here. How do we know that? We know this because Paul used this phrase very often, grace to you. How often did he use it? How many books did Paul write in the New Testament? Who knows? Thirteen. In every single one of his letters, every one, he starts and ends with this phrase. Grace to you. That's amazing. We, we know that the, the, the cherubim, the seraphim, day and night, without ceasing, they continually call out the same phrase about God. And what is that phrase? Holy, holy, holy. Why are they repeating themselves? Because, as you've heard many times before, I'm sure, when it comes to emphasis, try to bring a point home Uh, It wasn't underlined, it wasn't caps, it wasn't bold, it wasn't putting it in a different font or, you know, italics or emojis. They used repetition. Jesus, everything Jesus said was true and important, and yet sometimes what would he say? Truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen, everything I say is true, but I really want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say here. Repetition means something, and when you have Every single book that Paul wrote, starting and ending with the same phrase, you have to say, this means something. This is powerful. What is this? What is behind these three words that's so important that your pastor says, I'm going to dedicate an entire sermon to three words? There's much here. Grace to you. So we looked at grace earlier in this passage. Look, look at verse 5. He says, Through whom, meaning Christ, Jesus, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship. What did Paul mean when he talked about that grace? He meant that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they had been saved. This is the grace that saved them. And if you are here in a Christian, this is the grace that saved you. This is the grace that called you by the word of his power to turn your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. This is the grace, the love and kindness of God toward you that bought you forgiveness. What is grace? Grace is God sending his son to suffer for you so that you can be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. This is the love of God towards you, that he would treat his holy, holy, holy son as though he lived your life. 
You want to know how angry sin makes God? Look at the cross. Look at the cross and see the suffering and the anguish and the agony that Jesus Christ went through. That is God's anger towards sin being poured out upon him rather than you. This is grace. But the gospel brings good news. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the grace that you read about in verses like Romans 3.23. Again, we're talking about the grace that is found in verse 5, through whom we have received grace. What is that grace? This is the grace of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his, what? Grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is saving grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." When was the last time you were overwhelmed by this grace? When was the last time that you really were struck? Well, I want to try to make you overwhelmed by this grace. There are many people in history who have done unspeakable atrocities to other human beings. But there are few who were worse than a man nicknamed the Beast. And you may have never even heard of this man. Luis Garavitillo from Colombia was sentenced to 1,835 years. You say, what did he do? For the abuse and murder of 147 boys. Totally, he murdered 189 people. This godless, vile, Man would dress up as a priest or a teacher to gain the confidence of the child, promising them work or something else, lure them away, and then he would mutilate them, torture them, murder them, and leave them for the wild animals to devour. Cold, heartless, evil, the definition of total depravity. Can you imagine if that man did such a thing to a child you loved? I mean, that's enough to make the gentlest one among us filled with rage and anger. Do you know what grace is? Grace is God sending His only Son to live a perfect life for men as dark and perverted as Him. Grace is God setting His love and affection upon men as wicked as He is. Grace is God pouring out his anger on his beloved son, Jesus Christ, as if he did those terrible things to children. Because even serial killers repent and believe the gospel, don't they? And would any of you forgive a man like that? Would any of you take a, a man 
like that into your family and treat him as if he was one of your own? Would any of you let that man talk to you? Search him out to do good to him. Would any of you willingly love such a person with full knowledge of all of his dastardly deeds? Would any of you sacrifice your dog or cat, let alone your child, for someone like that? None of us would. And yet, what does the scripture say that God did? Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the unearned, unmerited, undeserved kindness of God to make you alive, to give you faith and repentance, to cry out to him and believe. This is the grace that saves you from hell and sin in this world. This is the grace of God, and it's supposed to be scandalous. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be alarming and cause us to worship. The the, the Greek word literally means to stoop down. Parents, when you talk to your children, sometimes you stoop down, right, to, 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 to get to their level. That's the idea here. So out of his infinite love and kindness, the offended one, the one who's been sinned against, stoops down. Now, children, boys particularly, you may stoop down to crush an ant. You may stoop down to kill a snake. But God doesn't stoop down to destroy us. He stoops down to love us, to pour out his mercy upon us, to forgive us. He condescends. He comes down to our level and the Son of God takes on flesh. This is grace. He stoops down to redeem you, to adopt you, to forgive you, to love you, not because you earned it or deserved it, not because you paid for it, but because he is love and he chooses to love you and call you and make you his own. This is the grace that Martin Luther was talking about in the hymn that he wrote by grace alone. Your pardon is a gift of love. Your grace alone must save us. Our works will not remove our guilt. The strictest life would fail us. Let none in their own merits boast, but let us own the Holy Ghost, for he alone can change us only by grace, by grace alone. This is the grace that Paul was talking about when he said in verse 5, through whom we have received grace. But here he says, grace to you. He is praying that the grace of God would be given to them. Is this the same grace? Why would Christians need to be given grace If they've already been saved by grace. I mean, how many times can someone be born again? How many times can someone be made alive by the spirit? How many times can a child of the devil be turned into become a child of God? Only once, one time, immediately. If you're here and you don't know him and you trust in Christ, you will be born again now. 
because his sacrifice is once for all. So then what does this mean? Well, remember, what is grace? Grace is God's kindness, his love, his affection, his help, his power toward you. And does your need for his help and love and power stop once you become a Christian? No. I mean, you still need his help, don't you? So Paul isn't praying for Christians to be given saving grace again. He is praying that the redeemed, forgiven, born-again saints of God would be given help to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He is praying that believers would be given power. He is praying that Christians would be given help and power to make the name of the Lord holy. Brothers and sisters, when you think about your Christian life, what do you see? Do you see any areas of weakness? Do you see any struggles? What do you struggle with the most? Why are you not growing more in prayer? Are you at the same place when it comes to reading your Bible that you were last year and you come to the same place? You've kept promises. You're going to be more evangelistic, but you have not kept those promises. Why aren't you holier, more obedient, more disciplined, more faithful? What is it that you need? What do you need to love your wife as Christ loved you? What do you need to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ? What do you need to honor your parents? What do you need to lovingly train up your children? What do you need to not panic when we have a president like we have and the vice president is even worse than he is? What are the Christians in Haiti who have lost everything Their hunger is strong. Their children are without even basic needs and they don't even have a solid community of Christians to fellowship with. What do they need? What do the saints in Afghanistan need to not fear as the Taliban is still going house to house, hunting them down like deer? What about our brothers and sisters in China or North Korea or Japan? What do they need? What do you need? What do the saints in Rome need? The same thing every single church that Paul wrote to, and that is grace. Grace to you. In other words, power to you. Power to read your Bible with faith. Power to obey in the midst of great temptation. Power to forgive the most horrific and venomous enemies. Power to love those who hate you. Power to suffer well. Power to trust your heavenly father when your stomach is grumbling, your children are hungry and there's no food. Power to endure and rebel against this godless world and its system. Grace is like a coin. And on one side is saving grace, marvelous grace, grace that takes you out of the kingdom of darkness and brings you into marvelous light. But children, how many sides does every coin have? Two. So what is the other side of the coin of grace? It is the power of God toward you, for you, in you, to help you. This is what Paul is praying This is what we see in verses like 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God given to me. 
Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul laid a foundation. How did he lay that foundation? The preaching. So he's already saved by grace, but now there's this grace that's given to him that allows him to preach pure apostolic doctrine that lays the foundation. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See what he does? He says, my work, which was, I worked harder than everyone else. We're not talking about saving grace. We're talking about the grace of God to strengthen me so that I can work hard for his namesake. This is the power of God at work in this man. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having, notice, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There it is again, this theme of the grace of God that is sufficient for you to work and abound in all things. Ephesians 3, 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then 2 Timothy 2.1, he tells Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How were the believers in Scripture able to do all the things that they did? You read about Ruth. You read about Esther. You read about, you read about Abraham. You read about Samson and Gideon. And on and on it goes. David. And you say, how were they able to do the things that they did? These miraculous things. The amazing things. These powerful things. How was Ezekiel able to deal with all the stuff that God, as a prophet of God, was telling him to do? And Isaiah and Jeremiah. And we find the answer. It is by grace alone. Acts 6, 8, Stephen, what does it say? And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, why did he proclaim the message with such power? Grace. How was he able to suffer being stoned in his face like an angel and pray for the people who were stoning him? Grace, grace, grace. Acts 13, 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. They've already been converted. Continue going according to the strength that he supplies. But it's not just in Scripture that we see these patterns. We see this in history. The power of God at work. 
They were able to endure many things, do many things. And have you found it true that when you read the stories, you read the stories of these missionaries or these martyrs or these these church fathers and all that through history, there's something about their lives that is just almost supernatural. These things they did, it's like, how were they able to suffer that and get up? How were they able to love people who treated them so harshly? How were they able to preach with such passion and boldness and power? Think about George Whitfield, for example. The testimonies about the preaching of George Whitfield are hard to believe if there wasn't so much documentation that it was true. He would preach to tens of thousands of people multiple times a day without any microphone And he was only 24. John Piper writes this about his life. Sober estimates are that he spoke about 1,000 times every year for 30 years. The daily pace he kept for 30 years meant that on many weeks he was speaking more than he was sleeping. Keep in mind that most of these messages were spoken to gatherings of thousands of people. And this Uh, was proven scientifically by one of George Whitfield's friends, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. This is what Benjamin Franklin wrote about Whitfield. He had a loud and clear voice and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his audiences, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. So he did a little experiment at one of uh, Whitfield's preaching times. He said, I computed that he might well be heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields. How is this humanly possible? How could a young 24-year-old man do such amazing things? What about loving enemies? Many of you have read Tortured for Christ, and I would commend it to you if you have not. Richard Wormbrand wrote this, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. Wormbrand himself had been tortured. Um, He says, they broke four vertebrae in my back and many other bones. They carved me in a dozen places. They burned and cut 18 holes in my body. And this is what he had to say. I hate the communist system, but I love the men. How is that possible? What about rejoicing and suffering? More accounts of suffering Christians. Again, this is from Tortured for Christ. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. 
So you get the idea. We're not talking about birthday punches. You know, kids do that. How old are you? Birthday punches. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. That is how they beat them, to where they were bloody and bruised. Now, what did this man do? Slowly, he picked his battered body up, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? He continued his gospel message. He says, I have seen beautiful things. How is that possible? How could they do that? You see, we can be tempted to start to look up to these people, to idolize these people, to think they had something that I did not have. They have access to something that is untouchable by me. I mean, who could be Whitfield? Who could be Spurgeon? Who could be these Christians in the underground church? What about enduring affliction during the the, the bloody reign of Queen Mary of Tudor, better known as Bloody Mary, hundreds of our Christian brothers and sisters were burned alive. One account from Mr. Rogers, his death came quickly. As soon as the wood was lit, the fire burned fiercely. Very soon it had burned off his legs and reached his shoulders. He held his hands in the fire and went through the motions of washing them as if the fire had been cold water. Then he withdrew from the flames, held them aloft in the air, and required a pra- recited a prayer till he died soon afterwards. He's being burned alive. And he's praying as though he feels nothing. A couple of weeks later, another Christian was brought to the stake. His name was Hooper. And they tried to do his execution cheaply. They only brought as much wood as could be carried on two horses. Much of the wood was green. The wind was very strong that day. The wind was blowing away from Hooper as he stood fastened to the stakes. So the flames, after burning Hooper's legs, did not reach the rest of his body. And soon the flames were almost extinguished. He cried out in agony for the fire to come to him. They sent for more wood. Remember, this is being done in front of crowds of cheering people. He's being burned alive. By now, both of his legs were burned off, but he stood on their stumps, praying and striking his breast with his hands. Then one of his arms burned away, but he continued to strike his breast with the other hand as he called on God to receive his soul. He was still alive and conscious three quarters of an hour. This took 45 minutes. Although he had lost both his legs and arms, but at last he died. How can people endure such pain? One feeling almost nothing, the other feeling every single bit of anguish, and yet both look to the Lord and remain faithful. What about revival? We want revival, don't we? In the book Invasion of Wales by the Spirit through Robert Evans, 
You can read such amazing things like this. Mora is overcrowded again with some 800 people overflowing into the old chapel. Many were on their knees for a long time, owing to their distress and agony of soul. A young girl in her early teens, this is a teenage girl, cried out, Oh, what will heaven be like if it is so wonderful down here? She's just wrapped up in the worship and the glory of God. The newspaper reported there had been no arrests for drunkenness since the revival had started. The earnings of the workmen, instead of being squandered in drink and vice, were now bringing joy to their families. Outstanding debts were being paid by the thousands by young converts. Restitution was the order of the day. The gambling and alcohol businesses lost their trade. The theaters closed down from lack of patronage. Football during this time was forgotten by both players and fans, though nothing was mentioned from the pulpits about the evils of football. In this country, which has a general reputation of being football mad, the people had a new life and new interests. How has this happened? And don't you want this in your life? Don't you want this in your family? Don't you want this in our church? How do we get this? And one more. Ever heard about the 40 Roman soldiers of Sebast? In 316, Emperor Licinius decreed a persecution of Christians in the east. He threatened death if they failed to renounce their faith. And in 320, 40 young Christian Roman soldiers refused to sacrifice to idols and were tied and were tried before the tribunal at Sebast. He tried threats and torture to persuade them, but you know what he did? He had them stripped of their clothing and stand upon a frozen pond. And he had 40 hot baths put upon the bank and say, all you got to do is sacrifice idols and you can come and bathe in this warm water. You've been cold. You know what it's like to tremble? To have your teeth shatter. Here they are, 40 of them, without any covering, standing on ice in a cold, blistering day, surrounded by people who are laughing at them, mocking them with warm water, just feet away. And all they have to do is deny Christ. And what did they pray for? You know what they prayed for? It wasn't that it would get warm. It wasn't that they would die quickly. This was their prayer. Lord, we are 40 engaged in this contest grant that 40 may receive crowns and that we may not fall short of that sacred number <laughs> they said may we all remain faithful we came out with 40 let 40 go to see you and one of their number he saw that hot water and he renounced christ but one of the guards saw their love for christ stripped off his clothes and said, I want Christ, and stood out there with them. And so their number of 40 remained. At daybreak, the stiffened bodies of the confessors, which still showed signs of life, were burned and the ashes cast into a river. 
How is this possible? How were men and women able to do such amazing things? How did George Whitfield preach to 25,000 people without a mic? And the meetings were, were filled with stories of people being convicted and people who were angry. There's one story of coal miners, their faces covered in the black soot. And they were so they were cursing at him and yelling and mocking. But as he preached, he began to see the tears run down their coal stained faces and they were converted. How is this possible? How were the martyrs able to stand firm and not cave in when their bodies were being burned or their bodies were being frozen? How did that happen? Brothers and sisters, the grace of God, grace to you. How does revival come? How are sinful, weak preachers able to preach Jesus in such a way that souls and hearts are stirred? The grace of God. How were people able to love their torturers? Was it because of some good in them, some nobility in them? Brothers and sisters, grace to you. It's all of grace. It's God's power. It's God's mercy. It's God's presence. It's God's spirit. It's all of him, all for him, all because of him. What about you, Christian? How have you been able to grow as much as you have? Every Christian here knows what it is. You're exhausted. Maybe it's the prayer meeting. And you're like, I'm so tired. I don't have the energy. But what do you do? You cry out to the Lord for His help. And you find yourself energized, strengthened. Where does that come from? It is the grace of God. Mothers, how many times have you been at the point of wanting to tear your hair out or just collapsing where you stand over exhaustion and you cry out to the Father in heaven and what do you find? Yourself singing. You find yourself with strength and renewed energy. What is that? What happened? How many times have you noticed that you didn't have insight and wisdom, but it was given to you that you didn't study for? Don't you find it true that you've been able to do things and understand things, serve and love in ways that you thought this is humanly impossible. I don't have time. I don't have resources. I don't have energy. I don't have strength. I don't have knowledge. Maybe you've been counseling someone. Maybe you've been preaching the gospel to someone. Maybe you've been washing your wife with the water of the word or, or pouring into your children or a neighbor or a friend. And as you're speaking, you're like, wow. That's really good. Where'd that come from? You're impressed by what's coming out of your own mouth. What is this? This is the grace of God to you. Grace to you. Grace. How have you been able to forgive that person who hurt you so deeply? How have you been able to forgive the one who betrayed you in a way that shows Christ forgives like this? It's the grace of God. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. Why haven't you fallen away? Why are you still running the race? Why are you still on the narrow path with so many people leaving Christ and rejecting truth? Big names, small names, pastors, authors, musicians, apologists, you name it. But here you are. Because you're smarter. You're stronger, you're wiser, you know better than that. Why? It is God's grace to you. It is his power to you. It is his help. It is his presence. It's his mercy to you, for you, in you, through you, strengthening you, using you. 
My wife introduced me to a show called How It's Made. Maybe some of y'all have seen that. It's really cool. They show you all this behind the scenes of how microphones are made or phones or your favorite snack. And you get to see the inner workings of how it goes from here to there. Brothers and sisters, if the question was asked, how is the Christian life made, sustained? How is fruit brought about? What's the behind the scenes? What are the inner workings? What's the engineering of the Christian life? And we go back to back and what do we find? Grace. It's grace to you. And grace alone. As John Newton wrote, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This is the power that is available to every single one of you. George Whitfield was not special. He had access to the same grace you do. Spurgeon was not something special about himself. Listen to his own words and he would tell you all of grace. He wrote a book, all of grace. Everything that they did, it was because God had strengthened them. You know what? Spurgeon would say on his way to the pulpit as he would walk up the steps, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he knew there was nothing in him. It was all of grace. It was all the power of God. And every single believer here has the same access to grace as those martyrs, and those missionaries, and those pastors, and everyone in the scripture that you read and you're encouraged by, you have the same access to the grace of God that they did. So why is it that we may look at our lives and say, I don't see as much fruit as them. I don't see as much victory as them. I don't see as much power in my life as them. What is wrong with me? There are enemies to grace. There are roadblocks to receiving more grace, more help, more power. And we're just going to look at two. The first one is pride. Self. James 4.6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes who? The proud. But what does he give to the humble? Grace. What is grace? It is the power of God to help you in your time of need. But what if you don't ever think you need His help? What if you think, I can do this by myself? Then what happens? You actually cut yourself off from help. You cut yourself off from power. 1 Peter 5, 5 echoes this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace is the kindness of God to needy saints. Do you know that you're needy? Do you act like it? Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. Are your hands empty? The proud always has a scheme to get themselves out of trouble, but the humble cry out for help because they know they have absolutely nothing in themselves. Are you proud? The proud think they can do it. 
But the humble knows they cannot unless the Lord helps them. Are you humble? Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power. Notice that grace, power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you want the power of God in your life? Are you willing to be weak? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How am I strong? Because of his grace. How am I strong? Because of his power. But that power only comes when we see ourselves, when you see yourself as weak and needy and empty and dependent. But if you walk in pride rather than humility, then the Bible says God opposes you. God fights against you. And the last thing you need is for God to fight against you. No, we need his help. How do you get the help of the Lord? Weakness and humility. Proverbs fifteen twenty five: the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty or proud spirit before a fall. proud person acts like they don't need God. The proud person thinks that they can do it all by themselves. Do you think you can do it by yourself? I know we say we don't think we can. But what does our life show? One of the ways you can prove if you think you can do it by yourself is how often you pray. How often do you ask him for help? How often do you abide in him, walk with him, talk to him, rely on him? Again, we have this mindset that we can get back into self-reliance so easily and forget we are weak. (laughs) Only he is strong. Jesus said, apart from me, how many things can you do? Nothing. Again, we say it, but do we believe it? Do we really believe that we can do nothing? Do you really believe that you can't even tie your shoes or brush your teeth or drive your car to pay your bills, have a conversation, check your phone, check your email, go to work, love your kids? Do we really think we can't do these things? We think we can. And we talk to God for the big stuff, but this stuff we got, right? It's muscle memory. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know which people see the most grace at work in their lives? The same people who see themselves as the most in need of the grace of God in their life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Do you depend on your skills, your abilities, your discipline, your education, your spiritual maturity? Are you relying on yourself rather than the power of God? Then it's like you're telling the Lord, thanks, but I don't need your help. You know what it's like? It's like the Lord offers to help you and you slap his hand away and say, I I got it. We don't pray. We don't ask him for help. We just do it. He offers you his help again and you slap his hand away and said, I got it. We don't say it with our mouths, but our actions by not relying on him, depending on him, asking him, seeking him, waiting on him, resting in him. Like our brother was telling us last week, strive to enter that rest. How difficult is it? Because we're so self-reliant and we have to put that to death. He offers his help again and again. You slap his hand away. When I need your help, I'll ask for it. Have you been trying to be strong enough when what he calls for is weakness? Because this world says, be strong. You can do it. You got this. You're an independent woman. You could do it. You're a self-made man. You could do it. And the Lord is saying, you cannot do it without me. It's against the culture. It's against our selfish Adamic nature. Thank God we have a new nature in Christ. But what is earthly still in us needs to be put to death, Paul wrote to the Colossians. And this would be that. You know, one of the ways we can rely on self and this pride is by looking to ourself, looking to our performance. Looking to how well you're doing, how repentant you feel, how sincere you feel. When all throughout the scripture, we're being told, look to Christ, trust in Christ, rely on Christ, abide in Christ. If you look to yourself, all you find is discouragement. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He is looking. He's looking Who is relying on me? Who thinks truth that they can't do it? He's waiting to give strong support. But there's so many people in this world that say, I don't need your help. I don't need your support. I got it. I can do it myself. But he's looking for the one who will say, I am poor in spirit. My hands are empty. My mouth is empty. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I cannot unless you do. And he says, that's the one that I'm going to give my help to. Is that you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. What's the next part? And how many? All your ways. Acknowledge him. Do you? Can you point to any area of your life where you don't acknowledge him? And why do we do that? Well, we don't intentionally say, I hate you, God. I don't think about you. I don't want you. But it's the heart that says, I don't need to acknowledge you in this way because I got it. I can do it. But these people that I read to you about, you listen to their own words and they will tell you they have no ability in themselves. They rely on the Lord. The last enemy 
that I'll bring up to grace is grieving the Holy Spirit. Who is the one who pours out grace upon the church? The Holy Spirit. Who is the helper of the Christian? The Holy Spirit. Who is the interpreter of Scripture? The Spirit. A major enemy of grace is grieving the Spirit of grace. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Puritan James Smith said, when we grieve the Spirit, We doubt and fear, we fret and pine, we kick and rebel, we roll from thing to thing, and nothing will either please or satisfy us. We often question the past, are wretched at present, and dread the future. What did the Lord say through Zechariah? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but how? But by my Spirit, says the Lord, God's great deeds are going to be done by His Spirit. And if we grieve the One who was sent to help us, we're cutting off our help. We're cutting off our supply. We are rejecting assistance and walking in our own strength which will always lead us to calamity. Are you grieving the Spirit of grace? How do we grieve the Spirit of grace? By unrepentant sin. Diving into sin. Intentionally sinning. sinning, Deliberately sinning. He's leading you this way. As we were talking about earlier, keep in step with the Spirit. Do you try to quiet His voice so that you can do what your sin wants? Beware. This is deadly. When temptation whispers, emotions whine, and your flesh argues, you need the Spirit. I need the Spirit. So often the Spirit of God is ignored. Are you ignoring Him? So often He is refused. Are you refusing Him? If you have been grieving the Spirit of grace, cry out in repentance. And don't rename it. Repent of it. You didn't lose your temper. You had an outburst of anger and it is sin. The way that you, if you have grieved the Spirit, what do you do? You repent. You deal with the thing and you don't rename it. You don't try to give it flowery language to make it sound better. You didn't let your eyes wander. You looked with lust. It's sin and it needs to be repented of. You didn't get carried away. You didn't make a mistake or any of these other terms that our world likes to use. We own up. I sinned against you, Lord. Forgive me for grieving your spirit. Help me to walk in your ways. I need you. You need him. 
You cannot run this race without him. You cannot overcome sin without him. You cannot suffer well without him. Love truly, submit joyfully, or preach powerfully without the spirit of grace. Grace to you, the power of God, his infinite power, is available to every child of God. And the soil that the grace of God grows in is humility. And the thing that causes this grace to be kept from us is when we grieve the Spirit of grace. We do not walk closely to Him. So brothers and sisters, when you sin, keep short accounts. It doesn't matter how small you may think it is so that you walk with the Spirit and do not grieve Him. I'd like to read to you this last words from the, the hymn that He giveth more grace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Grace to you. Father, thank you that you And your kindness, not only save us by your grace, but you keep us by your grace. You fill us by your grace. You empower us by your grace. And Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace to suffer well. We need your grace to love our enemies. We need your grace to endure, to press on, to proclaim your truth with power. We need your grace to walk carefully. We need your grace to hear from you, to see you, to see you in the word. We need your grace and you've given us the spirit of grace. Help us to not grieve him. Forgive us, Lord, for self-reliance, looking to self, thinking about self, relying on self. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we have not been sensitive to your spirit, for the times when we have not kept in step with your spirit, for the time that we have known it was wrong, we did it anyway in full view of your spirit and have thus grieved him. Lord, forgive us. We cannot make it without you and we don't want to try. So we cry out to you as a church that more grace would be given to us, that we would walk carefully as we keep our eyes on Christ and not ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.